Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. Shortly about um, the end game innovation in the field and automation um, within urology. I recall when I was uh, interviewing for urology back in 2006, um, as an ex it was exciting as an interviewee to, to make rounds with your robot, Dr. Kabusi, um, when we visited for our interview. Um, so some questions I have for you. As a leader and innovator, what are the most important lessons you have learned during this pandemic and how do you think that this will change academic urology going forward? That's a, that's a whole talk right there, Dr. Badalato. So first I wanna thank you, um, Alex, Michael, and I for inviting me, putting this all together because it was uh, a great idea and a great thing to do. Um, and again, honored to talk. Um, I'm I want to apologize to those of you who came on to listen to the urinal stricter talk. I'm happy to do that at a later time. Uh, but I thought this would be uh, a little more fun. Um, and you had a lecture on urethral strictures. My one editorial on that talk, which I have to give because I've listened to it and I've listened to many of these talks, um, is they talked about uh, uh, appendiceal and fallopian tube interpositions. Back in the 90s, uh, I had done a bunch of these at Hopkins. Unfortunately, we never published it. And the reason we didn't publish it because they all strictured at the ends over time. So that's why we went to detubularized grafts and uh, and also the onlay graphs. And most of the onlay graphs are not tubularized there. Uh, buccal mucosal graphs are, are onlay. So that's my two cents. And it made me think that something you should consider in the future is having uh, two experts and maybe back to back so that you, you don't, because of time constraints, because you, um, it's all personal opinion. Like my talk is going to be a lot of this data, but there's personal opinion in there. And we all, and the lesson is, have to be challenged um, when we say things and whatnot. And I need to be challenged. Maybe I wasn't doing the tuberized graphs correctly. There were maybe some subtle things that we missed. So I think that is an important thing going forward with this, and this should go forward. In terms of how has... Uh, uh, COVID changings, to answer your question, um, it is yet to be seen. This year, things are going to be changed a lot. I can tell from the SAU a point of view, it looks like there aren't going to be any sub-I's if the double AMC, and I have a call later on today with the double AMC, but that means anywhere. So we have to get smarter in terms of how do we learn about these students, and there are going to be guidelines for setting up, hopefully, virtual sub-I's to meet people. We're going to start doing virtual also interviews most likely in the fall because there's a prediction this can come back. And so why not be prepared for that? So um, that may become standard to save students money, to save people time, etc. So from a medical student interaction standpoint, it can affect there, it can affect learning. But there's always the, the personal factor looking into someone's eyes. 
facial expressions. You can see it's flat, it's on the side, you're not really focusing on it. And I think that's not gonna go away. And I don't know if you were on the phone call a few weeks ago, the essay you had for all the chairs around the country. And the best case scenario in terms of how much urology is gonna turn into medicine, they felt that the, the highest or optimal would be 30% of urology could end up being telemedicine. That was uh, an opinion given from our friends on the West Coast who uh, have been doing this for a while in San Diego. Um, they've been doing it a while before COVID came into place. And they said, it looks like uh, them and Mark Lindman at UCLA were saying about 30% is where it's gonna end up. So still 70% of what we're gonna do is in person. It's again, difficult to completely evaluate a prostate without doing a rectal examination, um, et cetera. So I'm gonna stop there because I'm eating up my own time. No worries, thanks for that insight. And um, yes, we look forward to your lecture, take it away. All right, kids. So um, I was thinking we're gonna have fun this morning. This needs to be interactive. And if anybody wants to make a comment or inject something during the presentation, I will not be offended, please do. And uh, we'll get started. So Endgame conjures visions in your mind, that's for sure. I first wanna say I have no financial disclosures currently in this uh, presentation. And also acknowledge there's a lot of engineering work in here. And I am a frustrated engineer. I majored in chemistry at Columbia as an undergraduate um, and wanted to be a chemical engineer, but got derailed at some point. But over my career, I've worked with just some, been fortunate enough to work with some unbelievable engineers and would, would uh, recommend uh, to the residents it's never too young to start knocking on doors. And most of these, I would say, were cold calls. Uh, it's the rounding robot that Dr. Babalato was talking about was with Yulin Wang. And essentially, he was at a booth at uh, not even the AUA, but the American College of Surgeons. So he's like, why was it the American College of Surgeons? But I happened to be there and probably pretty bored. So I was going around and saw his technology. And I just badgered him, literally badgered him. And I thought that this would be a fun thing to do in urology and came up with ideas and that's how we interacted. But all these people was just um, going out of our comfort zone and, and, and meeting these things. And none of this can happen because we're not engineers. We need them for the technological aspect I'm gonna talk about. All right, end game. So end game, and I would ask this as a question, but I think it would be cumbersome. But the term end game is actually a chess term. It comes from in the 1860s or so um, and it talks about close to the end of the game in terms of strategy in terms of how do you finally win the game how do you get to the game and the term end game has been used recently and uh i would like by a show of hands even though i can't see all your hands a lot of you maybe you brush your teeth or whatnot we don't see your video but raise your hand on how many people have seen end game see a lot of people have seen end game and yes, Endgame was this wonderful 2016 movie uh, starring um, uh, the star of, uh, of Modern Family. And it was a chess game. He, was, he grew up in Mexico. His grandfather taught him how to play Texas. They moved to El Paso, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what Endgame's about. Chess movie, correct? About getting to the very end, all right? So what is the Endgame for surgery? Surgeon. You think you're a surgeon, what do you want to happen for a patient that you take care of? Well, we're surgeons, so most of us, 
enjoy doing things with our hands. Most of us enjoy operating. So what do we want to do? We want to cure disease. And the wonderful thing about surgery is that we're pretty good at curing a lot of our neurologic diseases with surgery. In terms of complications, oh, stay close to the mic. I just got one of my residents said that uh, I'm moving around too much. All right, I'll try to stay a little stiller here. Um, so we want to do this with no complications. All right, that makes sense. Want to do it efficiently, especially as uh, as we know when they say it's not about the money, it's always about the money. Um, as more and more business people have taken over hospitals, um, we need to do an efficient time to get things done in an efficient manner. And I will tender to you that there is actually a chasm between what the surgeons want and what the general publics want in terms of the end game. And we're happy with those things I mentioned diseases, minimizing complications, and um, doing it efficiently. But what is the patient's real end game? What is the patient's real end game? They come to you with a beautiful looking abdomen, and they want it to look, if you're going to operate on an intra-abdominal organ, they want it to look equally as so. And we've all as attendings have had uh, uh, young patients who even the thought of a, a, a single port around the belly button incision makes them think they're never going to find their partner of a lifetime. It is really stressful for them. And um, I think it, it, it's an extreme, but it is something that all patients want. They don't want to hurt. They don't want to um, have complications at all, no matter how minimal. They, they want to be like they were when they came in the office. And I think that is the patient's end punchline to this is we have to do everything we can to eventually arrive at that end game. We're not, not there at this point in time, but we'll talk about maybe through talk some ideas on how we get to that point. And we as surgeons have a certain perception of ourselves, and uh, um, we are all guilty of this. We think we do a great job. We did this case, how great it was. And then you come out and you start telling colleagues about it. And most colleagues don't want to hear about it, but we listen anyway, because then we end up doing to other people, et cetera. Oh, this is a great case I did, blah, 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 blah. So in terms of screening for surgeons and urologists, what's the screening process? And this is data from about a year and a half, two years ago from our medical school here at Hofstra. And you can see it shows the GPAs and the MCATs, and they're pretty high. These are pretty smart people. There are a couple of outliers that for a variety of reasons uh, had special talents that were brought in. But for the most part, everyone's screened at being how smart they are. And why is that? Why, why do we screen in urology using step one scores? Well, we screen because people have to pass their boards. And there's a, if you don't pass your board, you get dinged by the RC and the ABU and all these organizations ding you. So you figure, aha, if I get the people who score best on standardizing exams, well, then they're not going to make my little program look bad. They're going to pass their boards. They're going to do great. So that is the dirty little secret of how it happens. Now, thank goodness they finally are getting doing away in urology with step one scores. It's going to be pass-fail. And we already hear, uh, Dr. Bobolo can confirm this, bemoaning of people, how are we going to assess candidates? Or maybe there are better things to assess them on. And in surgery, how do we assess them for technical abilities? 
Well, it's whoever wants to play gets to play. So whatever medical student wants to become a surgeon gets to apply for a surgery residency and become a surgeon. Isn't that America? Isn't that great? Now, the odd thing is growing up, I really wanted to play defense for the New York Rangers. I really did. Did I not ice skate? No, but I figured I could do it. Now, in retrospect, that was pretty stupid. And you knew if I cold called, and I actually did write as a kid a letter to the New York Rangers, and I got a nice little package of gifts for them, but there's no way, all right? In surgery, this is, I'm gonna say, this is crazy. This is what we do. Anybody who wants to become a surgeon becomes a surgeon. And I think this is gonna have to change again because of finances. It's gonna have to change because it costs training everybody. And I can tell you that in the old days, when I, when I was a resident stories, we could operate as long as we wanted to. If it took five or six hours for a resident to get through a case, the attending was in another room doing paperwork, reading the newspaper, uh, paying bills, doing whatever they did. I had one guy clean his gun, he used to bring his guns and dismantle them, clean them in St. Louis. And, but nowadays, and I'm going to give a story. I, administration called me and they keep track of all our times of people. And there was one attending whose cases were outlined. And they said, you can't let him do uh, these cases anymore because he takes too long. Well, I know for a fact that he's one of the few attendings that really lets the residents get their teeth into operations and whatnot. They said, no, that's not, that's not right because the resident will get to learn. But the reality is some people take longer to learn than others. And in Canada, they're looking at a system in which the training period will be variable, that there's some people that who have proclivity towards technical abilities and suturing, et cetera, may finish sooner than other people who need a little bit more work. But to think about it, even at the end of the day, does that hold water? So what we advertise in terms of generating this program, setting out you guys, this is what we advertise. We advertise this to the RSC, we advertise this to the ABU, we advertise this to the general public. And what we usually get, yeah, it tastes pretty good, it's a cake, but it isn't quite what is advertised. I think we have to get to a point we get to the left. And the current model that we use, they say, well, if people aren't very good surgeons, they'll figure it out. Yeah, they do figure it out, but it's dangerous when people are figuring things out. And in reality, along the way, there are bad haircuts. And do you really want to be the first, do you want to be the first uh, um, customer of somebody um, just in, in barber school or even right after barber school? Maybe if the price is right, but when your health comes to matter, it's a little bit different. And there is a lot of collateral damage. And there's a great study out of Memorial um, that was done several years ago that looked at radical prostatectomies, surgeon experience, and probability of having a positive margin. Now, the old debate on really what a positive margin means, um, um, but um, it does tell something. If you're the same pathologist looking at all the slides, the surgery is done differently. And even out of 600 cases, and each of these lines is a different surgeon, each of these is a different individual, and um, you can see when it's 600 cases, there's variability in positive margins, right? Could it be patient selection? Maybe. But there are differences among us as surgeons. And we know this as surgeons when we watch people operate. You say, oh, this person's really good, this patient's really bad. If you want to get a good surgeon, ask the nurses in the operating room. They'll tell you who, you know, 
at least appears to be very good interoperatively, although they don't have post-operative information on the individual. Um, another thing that shows their differences is a study we did a few years back. This is my partner, Lee Ridgestone, and he's got on an eye tracking device. And this is a device that uh, they did a lot of study in Air Force pilots. And there are, um, there are real data to show that um, eye movements predict how good a pilot is, pilot error, et cetera, in terms of focusing. And so what this does, you put it on and while you're doing a task, be it flying a plane, operating, um, it follows eye movement, left, right, up, down. Um, it also, there's something which I didn't know, in an ophthalmology convergence and divergence. And it's interesting, our eyes are not always, both eyes are not always looking at the same thing. Um, which is interesting, so it can measure that. It also measures pupil response in terms of how fast they contract, how fast they dilate. And there's a very effective um, uh, vibration of our pupils who do that also that they measure. And based on all this, the smart engineers came up with some sort of algorithm that they do that and they can measure uh, in terms of being an expert. And uh, what you could also do is gaze tracing. So on the left is an expert, and on the right is a novice. And what each color is, it's a 10-second interval. So you put these on, and you have somebody look and doing a prostatectomy or whatnot, a laparoscopic prostatectomy. And you can see the expert eye movements are pretty tight, all right? Whereas the novice, uh, sometimes their eyes are going off the field. They're looking at, like, the clock. They're looking at the foot pedal on the floor, etc. So that gives you something. And then this magic uh, formula they had could predict time at which you were expert. And as expected, on the left, the novices were expert only 16% at a time. The, the fourth year residents going into Chiefs were about 45% at a time. And us experts, and I was one of the experts, were 93% at a time. But interesting, none of us were experts 100% at a time. Okay, So there is human fallibility, even the experts are not experts all of the time. And as I said, society's not only financial things gonna push it, but there are societal expectations. This is back from 2000 to Ares Human. This is when the government really started getting involved in our business. And they said there are 100,000 deaths per year because of what we do. And then they started setting up never events in the hospitals and to try to get attention to the hospitals and doctors. They said, okay, if these happen in the hospital, you're not getting paid, right? So somebody could have a perfect nephrectomy and the hospital normally gets, you know, 50, 60, 70 grand for it. But uh-uh, they got C. diff all there in the hospital. We're not paying you anything for their hospitalization. So that got people's attention, which is why hospitals really pushed to get their rates below a certain threshold to make sure they get paid. And this is only going to continue. This is just the tip of the iceberg. So we have to identify the source of the variation. And we as surgeons have to be the leaders on this. We have to be the leader of the team on this. Um, in terms of what is out there, um, the AUA, the ACS, there's Blues Initiative, there's CSATs, these are all elective right now, but they're eventually going to become mandatory in terms of quality. It's going to have to go in that direction. And there are some other things that you students will come up with a good idea. The residents come up with a great idea about. Something that has just come out, this is a project we've been doing with the OR Black Box. And for those who are not familiar with this, this takes a name from 
airplane black boxes because it essentially does the same thing. It is uh, a opaque device in the room that you don't see that does this. It records, there's a couple of cameras in the room. It records everything that goes on in the room. It records what the circulating nurse does, what the scrub tech does, what we're doing outside the patient. Apropos to our previous talk, everyone's heads are blurred and their voices are changed. And um, they also record what the anesthesiologist is doing over here. They record all the physiologic information and depending upon the case, record inside what's going on laparoscopically or if you're doing an open case, they have an open version to do that. So this is something that uh, we've been using for over the past year and we got some data from it. So what they do is record this. And I know Arun Rai's on the phone. If Arun wants to jump in and correct me or say anything about this, Arun, please do. He's my fellow. He's, he's currently working and put together, putting together papers on this. But essentially, if you ask me how these cases go, I'd say the vast majority of everything went fine. But from the black box data over, uh, and these were 80 cases, these are 80 cases they sample. Um, there were 180, uh, 38 surgical out adverse events. And you can see over here on this side the type of event. There was bleeding, thermal injury, mechanical injury, spillage of something, either cis fluid or, or whatnot. Um, and again, whether that translates into post-operative issues, we don't know yet. But the fact that these were identified, we should study them and we should assess what effect they have in the operating room. They look at procedure variability. I tell every patient, well, it's gonna take a partial nephrectomy will take about two, two and a half hours, right? And you can see some of these were pretty quick, an hour and a half. And some of these were, what the hell's you doing in there? Four hours long. There's tremendous variability. Now this could be because of patient variability, but I can tell you that residents were involved in these cases, right? Most of these cases, residents were involved in, and that can affect length of time that's being assessed. And they can assess which residents were helping them. And they can actually give, and I don't know if we have the slide here. I don't have the slide here. They have OSAT scores on each of my residents and on me. And again, I'm not an expert all the time either. I'm no angel all the time either. But they can assess over time over residents in terms of how to improve. And they also have, um, they have a proprietary software that, again, the secret sauce always makes me nervous because uh, even though I like engineers, Sometimes they don't get it and the secret sauce isn't hitting it. But they say they have something that's even better than OSETs. I'm waiting to see that data in terms of sorting things out and is not as human capital um, heavy. Uh, OSATs or crowdsourcing requires humans to look at it. This is uh, artificial intelligence looking at it. We'll see. In terms of other information, which is interesting, they look at the staff and look at distractions in terms of um, beepers, pagers going off, alarms going off, people talking about nonsense in the operating room, interruptions, um, lack of suture being in the operating room, et cetera, and people coming in and out. And on average, you can see how many 15 minutes per hour the doors were being open. That's a lot of time if you think about trying to keep a sterile environment. And this data can be compared, I'm not showing all the data, with um, data from Canada, where they've installed this. We're the first site in the US that had this, in the first urology site. 
And you can see we're much worse in terms of alarms. We're much worse in terms of people coming in and out in terms of time, entry and exit, and external communication. So it's an opportunity to try to fix these things. There, there's all sorts of things they can do. Imagine at the end of a case, imagine that if the instrument count was automatically assessed, right? And you didn't have to worry, nurses, our counts off, and we gotta wait for the radiation tech to come, and it's six o'clock in the evening, and oh, by the way, an attending radiologist has to read it, you can't read it, and then adds another two hours onto this person's case. Imagine if this could do it. And, and I think that this is just the beginning of, of opening the door into the operating room. We can talk more about this later. In terms of complications, they're expensive. And in our place, it's about um, almost $20,000 per complication. That includes everything. That includes um, an infiltrated IV to all the way up to somebody spending extra time in the ICU. So the bigger complication is obviously a bigger box. There's also money in terms of wasting OR time. Those 15 minutes wasted for a nurse running out to go finding something. 36 bucks a minute. That's a lot of money. So there's going to be advantages to automating this, looking at it, and using that data to improve from a quality standpoint. So getting finally to robots and how a robot's going to help in the operating room. So let me first talk about robots. And uh, you guys are too young, but I remember as a kid, cars that were hand-built. And in the old days, meaning the 40s, 50s, the cars were pretty good. And then came along the late 50s, 60s, early 70s, the cars were pretty crappy. They were breaking down. The quality was horrible. And what our uh, Asian um, friends did is they began automating the, the factories with robots. And guess what? The quality went up. And that's where, you know, before 1950, before, I mean, 1960, or even getting 70, you never heard really of a Toyota car or Nissans or those things. They were crappy cars, they were crappy Japanese cars, right? And all of a sudden the 80s came and say, wow, these are really high quality, really good cars. That's when they swooped into the market and it ended up forcing the U.S. car manufacturers, literally forcing. And it was very funny because there were a lot of union issues in that time and whatnot to, to, to sociologically change what happened in factories. And you say, well, and if that can happen against you, in the, in the, uh, uh, the United Auto Workers Union, et cetera, it's going to happen in the operating room against you, no matter what positions say. This is going to happen. The real first uh, FDA-approved robot was a true robot, something called ESA. And this was developed from a small company, Computer Motion, out in California. Yulin Wang is there. Yulin and it's a true robot. What it did, it held your camera. It held a laparoscopic camera, maybe an instrument. And it's a true robot because the true robot, with a command, will do something automatically. So if you say move right, it's just a voice command, it will move right. You say move left, it move left. It didn't require that it would go a certain distance. It was pre-programmed to go a certain different distance. This company eventually got sued and there's a whole lecture I can give on the history of robots by uh, Intuitive, and they lost all their patents to Intuitive, and Intuitive shelved them all. They had a competing product to the DaVinci, and then DaVinci became all-powerful. And here's the DaVinci, you're all familiar with this. DaVinci is not a robot, but a great 
marketing effort back in the late 90s by Intuitive to call it a robot because it sounded cool. And it sounds cool when we tell patients, right? You're going to have a robot operate on you. It is nothing than a large paperweight unless there is a human attached to it. It can't do anything on its own. But this is, we can't stop here. So the purpose of this is don't stop here. Don't listen to intuitive. They over the past bought a lot of patents up to try to prevent automated robotics and other robotic competitors in there. They are not your friend. And they're a multi-billion dollar company because every case you use it on, they get about $1,500, $2,000 that normally would stay in your hospital and pay a nurse's salary or pay an extra tech or whatnot. That's my editorial. And the question is, and they say, well, it's wonderful because laparoscopy is really hard. And I'm, I'm saying it is really hard. Lucy, you said that it's really hard. You really want to short learning curves and whatnot, which a DaVinci sure does. So that means more people can do these operations. And again, a whole other talk is, should all everyone be doing everything? And right now, a big problem is the ABU and the RC expects every resident to finish with the same number or the same sort of minimum number of cases all these and everyone is certified to do everything after they graduate. And in reality, if I were to do a vasovasostomy, I probably should be thrown in jail, you know. But again, we go to uh, the whole concept of uh, self-selection, evolution. And again, society, I don't think, is going to accept this continuing in, in the future. It could affect, and I believe it's going to affect you, their current resident general practice during the time of the current crop of residents. At some point, it's not gonna happen this year, next year, but in the next 10 years ago, they're gonna get more and more involved in what we do to government. So talking about automated robots, some of you, a lot of you are familiar with the aqua beam. And again, I like this because it is again, automation in there. And for those who are familiar, it's for large prostate, it's essentially a power washer. It goes, it really does a great job of cleaning things out. It does a horrible job with hemostasis afterwards. And the residents love irrigating these patients when we do them. And they thank me profusely for it. I could say, thank God you did that aquablation. But the interesting thing about it is that it's a robot because you can pre-plan. So in the operating room, you use ultrasound, you pre-plan this thing, and then you press a foot pedal and it goes. It, it does what it's doing. So again, it shows that there's an acceptance for automation in the operating and it's something we should strive towards. So what is our end game? What is my, in my mind, the end game is having a robot that completely does everything in the operating And why aren't we there yet? Well, there are several problems. Number one, we need to define tissue properties. As opposed to a car, which is rigid, you know that in every car, the tolerance on every door, etc., everybody's different. Registration, so once you define that, you have to register the robot. Registration, for those of you who don't know how to use that term, is essentially allowing the robot to know in three-dimensional space where what it's working on is. So you got to register it to tissue. And then over time, as things move, you have to do real-time tracking. So it can follow where it moves over real-time. And then eventually, okay, eventually, develop end effectors. I think this is the easiest thing to do of all of the tasks that can interact with the patient. And then once it interacts, this is where the real artificial intelligence comes into 
and to understand what it's doing, understand what's happening to the tissue and integrate that and then iterate again what it does to, to fix that. And then for each patient, allow for preoperative and again, interoperative individual outcome planning. So in terms of defining tissue properties, uh, there's fortunately work going on in this now. And I think the person who gets, uh, we know that there's, we've been, done the virtual human project about 20 or 30 years ago in terms of scanning individuals. So we're pretty good at figuring out a patient's static anatomy um, at a given time and point. We're very good at the other end in terms of molecularly studying their genetics with the Human Genome Project. What we're not very good at is in between in terms of tissue properties as forces are applied to it and changes over time. And there's plenty of work being done in this, to probably the all-stars of this are the folks at the University of Minnesota and Rob Sweet at the University of Washington variety of models to understand tissue and this is and the reason to understand tissue is one if we're going to do virtual training or making real-time training we have to be able to reproduce what tissues do and uh, this is some of their data uh, on making a fake prostate or an artificial prostate put it that way printing it and you can use a uh, uh, active agents that are vulcan vulcanized different bulking agents and additives that change texture and they measure in these compression things and they can uh, look at uh, uh, forces generated uh, by different color strain gauges, et cetera, micro strain gauges to study and actually can create some of these organs to a study and be then used as templates if we're de developing devices to see how they change over time. We've got a long ways to go on this. And again, the exciting thing about these residents is, hey, guess what? Each of you in each of these areas can make a career out of this in terms of studying and moving the field forward. Um, I'll talk about that. I'll talk about this. This is, a, this is interesting. This was done in our operating room. This is a laparoscopic port, and uh, I think it was a partial nephrectomy. And this is to the on the left side of the screen is at the beginning. We just made the incision and just before we put our port and fell down to the fashion, measured the distance, and it was about. 2.8 centimeters, all right? This is two hours later at the end of this case, and it was 3.1 centimeters, okay? And this is just a trocar site. The trocar site changed by three millimeters during the operation, right? We know during an operation, tissue changes. And this is a problem, this is what needs to be studied. Now, here unto, we've been studying, we look at tissue, and we're all guilty of this, in Cartesian coordinates. Our engineering friends look at this look at tissue, and we need to need because we live in a three-dimensional space, but there are other tissue properties we're not looking at. And we're not looking at things such as electrical properties. This is a inbox, this is something we developed when I was down at Hopkins for, um, if we first made it for doing perps, we're getting into kidneys. So we put this on a needle, and then you had a little electrode at the end, so when we put perps in people, it beeped as soon as we went from the parenchyma uh, the resistance of solid tissue into urine. And then we modified it. And we were able to identify kidney tumors with it. Um, just demonstrate that we went in a tumor and had different electrical resistance and others. So there are different electrical properties. And then there's something that is in its baby see that you can't even find a book or anything on it. Um, it's, a, it's, an, it's a fetus. It maybe just got, uh, it just got created this egg 
and sperm, um, embryo, tissue thermodynamics. What the hell is tissue thermodynamics? And here's a study. This is something that we did. I did with Manish Beer, one of my partners, several years ago, and an engineer that worked at Becton Dickinson. And they have really super fine temperature monitors. All these big companies have really great equipment. So what we did is a series of experiments where we, this is just showing one, we took a cell line and half the cell line we just let die. And the other cell line, we kept, part of the cell line we kept going. And the freshly dead cells and the live cells, we put in two different test tubes and did something very simple. We had them at room temperature and then we put them in an incubator, let them go up to the incubator and to get them at steady state. Then we took them out to room temperature. And then we let them equilibrate a little bit and we put it back in. And this is a little bit complex, but over here, the red are the live cells and the white are the dead cells, okay? So we put them in and then we took them out. And what was fascinating, this happened, all the tumor lines, all the cell lines we looked at, the cells, the live cells cool down faster. It's like they had air they, they, they had Why they cool down faster? You think the dead cells would cool down faster? they cool down faster, whether it's a preser preserving mechanism or whatnot, who knows? Then they equilibrated and then they started warming up faster. Then we put them back in the, in the heating bath and they warmed up faster than the dead cells, okay? So we know something from a temperature standpoint is happening on a cellular level. We know something from a pressure on conduct. There are plenty of studies that look at pressure intra-oncotic pressure of tumors versus regular cells. This can be looked at as a cellular level. There is, we know this occurs. Again, there's a whole field. Of, we need to, I think, understand this to then finally create artificial tissues, etc. Again, it's something that you guys can do. Real-time tracking, right? knowing what's gonna happen as tissue moves and even predicting. Again, uh, if you drop uh, a penny on your desk over and over again, you have a pretty good idea where it's gonna land. With tissue, it's very, very different. So this is a project we're currently working on with the engineers at Hofstra. And what we decided, they said, let's go for, let's go for it all. Let's develop a suturing robot that can close skin incisions. And we picked skin incisions because they're easy to create, they're easy to vary, they're easy to image with visual imaging, they're easy to control, and assess, you know, how it looks. So what we did is that we got a series of models. I'll talk about the models essentially. And then our guilty is all engineers and all engineering set up a Cartesian coordinate and put our incisions in them to identify the points in space. So then we took our, our, our uh, model and then we pixelated it because we made it really tiny, tiny pixels. And then we assigned all those pixels uh, at a given time, their location. They each had a little different coloring. They had each a little density, uh, intensity in terms of absorbing light and association to each other. So all these factors were put together. And then we, um, and let me just back up. We had a couple of different models. We had a cardboard model, which is being shown here. And I'll show in a second uh, how this works. And then we had a vulcanized rubber model, and then we had cadaver model. So, so what this does is it has a visual, and this is very slow. We're just doing this for a demonstration purpose. If you can see, there's a tiny laser beam 
that's going across here. That's also acquiring uh, data on each of these pixels. So, but this thing can go incredibly fast. It can do the entire incision in four point something seconds. It can go really fast. It's really scary. It's like, if you've ever seen the Terminator with the guy with the knife in the hand, it goes that fast, all right? So um, this is it. We also had a vulcanized one, I said, and then a cadaver one. And then it creates a surface pixel map. And each of the different colors are the other uh, attributes of the pixels that we talked about earlier. Their color, uh, their, their density, their association with each other, et cetera, et cetera. So once we got that, and we'll go. Oh, and then they did all this stuff. So for those engineers here in the audience and some of the statisticians, you'll understand what all this means. They did all this stuff, whatever a blob detector is, whatever k-mean segmentation is, and then remembering back to your calculus and your integrals and your advanced calculus, they did all this. And they came up with an algorithm for identifying and then tracking the incisions, all right? And some of this they made up, some of it actually exists. There's a lot of the interest in this in the photography world and in the video world in terms of the creating uh, animations and whatnot. So, so they didn't come out of, this, out, of, out of the air. There's a lot of this around in other, in other uh, areas. And then you can manipulate it. The interesting thing is that you can move it around on the scale and examine it from three dimensions, these three dimensional incisions. You have a cloud point and then create it and then make predictions in terms of, of where things go. And what we did is looking at this model, the first thing we wanted to see how accurate it was. So what we knew is we knew what the real time measurements were and then we um, did this and then in our program we wanted it to tell us accurate to our analog what we did how accurate it was and how accurate it was in terms of this and this again is not ready for prime time but essentially it's a robot end effector for closing the incisions and essentially it's a series of magnets and i'm not going to go into this in the whole detail because that's a whole nother McGillicuddy, but essentially, again, we slowed this down. This goes very fast. And, and it, what it measures is the pressure, how far it goes down to, to anchor to the bottom of the wound, et cetera, et cetera. And in the cadaver, this is what it looks like, pulling things together. And what the data showed here, this is the data, in terms of looking at what the photo overlay showed and what we really ended up with. And there is still significant variability. There's about a four millimeter variability here, almost a half a centimeter off in the X and the Y. For some reason, the Z seems a little bit better. So is it ready for prime time yet? No, but at least it gives them information to go back to the drawing board. How do you get a better algorithm to detect it doing well forward in real time? So it's a start. And the factors, again, um, I think that everybody has a night when you go to bed or in the morning when you brush your teeth and take a shower, you have great ideas for instruments. And I think it's easier for us as surgeons to come up with those. This is a picture of an engineer, Dan Stavanovich. I worked with Hopkins, brilliant guy, great guy. 
um, who would literally walk into work, pick garbage for parts. He would see an old bicycle and he'd bring it to the lab, take it apart for screws and whatnot. And I think that's the kind of person that we need. And he developed all sorts of ineffectives as a needle for percutaneous access, for biopsying kidneys, et cetera. This is work out of Vanderbilt, uh, Duke Harrell's work with the snake robots and the micro snake robots for doing whole apps. I think these are gonna be phenomenal coming in the future. I, I was fortunate to visit and see these in person. Again, getting close to prime time, but really fascinating end effectors that are gonna be out there. The AI is gonna to be tough and they're working on a lot of spheres They're working on making diagnosis in other areas of medicine. So fortunately we don't have to take the lead on this, other people will, but it's out there. It's out there in gaming, all these companies, IBM, Big Blue, everybody is, is looking at this and it's gonna be something that comes forward. And then it's eventually getting all of these discoveries that come together to get finally the perfect world in surgery. And my vision of perfect world in surgery is gonna be a sign. So right now we're in its infancy. This is the very beginning, all right? And I predict in the future, and it may not even happen with you residents, but you need to push this along because you want a perfect world for your family and you because you all have this ideology. This is why you applied to medical school in the first place. We wanna help people. That's why all you guys, when asked to go frontline COVID, yeah, you were nervous, but you said, yeah. And there was something a little bit in you said, yeah, I really wanted to do that. I'm scared to do it, but I really wanted to. Because this is part of your DNA. This is part of your fabric. So I think in the OR of the future, there will be a role for a surgeon. There's gonna be a surgeon and there's gonna be a robot. And the role of the surgeon is to turn on the robot to do the surgery. And also in the operating room, will be a dog, and the dog's purpose is to make sure that the surgeon doesn't touch the patient. Again, thank you, and I know I went through a lot of different things, and look forward to talking to you and answering questions. Thank you so much. That was that was really wonderful overview of where we came from and, and what direction we're moving towards, and clearly your engineering background brings an added kind of richness to what you're, to what you're describing. We have some questions that were posted. Um, first question is, do you do black box findings that you spoke about correlate with surgical outcomes, in your opinion? That's a very good question. Aruna, are you on the line? Yeah, so I think that right now it's hard to say for sure that we have specific outcomes, um, clinical outcomes that correlate with specific intraoperative events. I mean, one of the the data that we received right now from the black box is relatively de-identified and it happens over a span of time. But our next goal of the study is actually being able to correlate specific clinical, you know, stratified by Clavy and Dindo, and being able to correlate them by uh, intraoperative adverse events that are graded by a, a different matrix. Right, and we don't, have a, we don't have a patent on this. We're just doing this. And I think some other cities, some other programs in the city are gonna have, I know I spoke with Jamie Landman out at uh, UC Irvine, and we're going to collaborate and do this. This has to be looked at. So this is an exciting study for all residents to look at because you always wonder what happens in the operating room. How does it affect things? There's certain things we know. If they end up coming out of the operating room, going in with a prostatectomy, coming out with a colostomy, we said, hey, yeah, we know that. But there are more subtle things that may affect it that really need to be examined. Yeah, one of, one of your slides showed the impact of the resident assistant on time in the OR. Um, can you speak a little bit about the role of simulation and uh, the learning curve for residents, how that mitigates um, any um, 
delay that they may, you know, or confounder that they may introduce to the operation and what your robotic curriculum for residents is like at, um, at your institution. Simulation is good, and there are plenty of studies that show that if you go through a simulator and work on a simulator, your skills will get better. The problems with sim simulators are that they only go so far, as we all know, there's a limited uh, fidelity to them. And also, um, I'm going to akin it to, I like to bike. I'm, 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 uh, I like to bike. And I have friends who like to bike. And I have a colleague who got a Peloton. And he got a Peloton for Christmas. And after about a month or so, clothes started ending up on the Peloton. And it got to a point that when you go to his house, you don't see the Peloton because there are clothes on it. And the reason being is because even with that fidelity, um, uh, I use a different inside trainer. I use a Zwift, which is fun. But after a while, I'm even saying, boy, this is getting boring. Wish there was a game to it, a Mario Brothers or something to it to keep my interest. And so I'm, I'm sure the, I don't have a great tension, attention span and most surgeons maybe don't. And I'm sure some of the residents don't. And, and that's a problem. Simulators are good, but they're not the answer. We have a program here, our PD, Mike Schwartz, who you know, um, helps set up a program with the residents. They have access to the robots. So I'm sure most of the programs are, have access to it, et cetera. But in some way, it's not as much engaging and it's not as much fun. That's why this has to move forward. There has to be. And there's going to be more pressure put on us as surgeons and you residents when you finish and become attendings on you um, and, and the resident to let the residents not do things. And I feel bad now because I have to move cases along because I know that they're counting the clock because they don't want their nurses to stay late and pay overtime. And at certain points, we got to move things along. As I mentioned earlier, in the old days, the attendings disappeared. They weren't there, and we just did, kept working until they ended up showing up and were bored and wanted to go to their kids' ballet recital. So I don't know, Gene, about your place, how, how you guys are, are approaching. It's important, but it's not there. It really needs work. Yeah, we, I agree. I agree with you, um, hundred percent. There's another question that we have. Um, personal question for you: What your position is on music in the operating room? Do you allow it? Do you think it's a distraction? Um, so I've I've never liked music in the operating room for multiple reasons. Here are my multiple reasons. Number one, I'm somewhat hard of hearing from adventures in my youth with music. So um, I have a hard time hearing to begin with, which is sometimes why I'm people, my wife says it too, you're yelling at people. I'm not yelling. It's just because I hear myself better. And I'm not, I never yell at my residents. They know that. Um, so it's for hearing. And then if I'm having a hard time hearing, on over the years, I've talked to other attendings, anesthesiologists and nurses who also have difficulty hearing it. There's music some information may not be transferred. Number two is as you're a surgeon, there is a certain cadence to the operation. There's a pace. And if the song changes, it changes the pace in your head. Number three, 
people are bopping around in the operating room, especially scrub techs. I love them. It depends who's coming in for relief. You know, and they may be listening to me. Put this in my wedding, Dr. Lucy. And all of a sudden, they're not thinking about the case. They're thinking about what Auntie Mame, you know, fell in the cake at their wedding. They're not thinking about what happened and what's going on in the operating room. And there is some data that shows that music is a distraction. And unfortunately, if you music lovers, I believe that there is going to end up being a moratorium in the future on music. I know people will hate me, but I think it is a distractor and it will be eliminated from operating rooms. You spoke a little bit about um, new standards for evaluating medical students, particularly with the elimination of the scoring of the USMLE and about, you know, evaluating medical students interested in surgery in particular. We know, you know, in the past with interviewing medical students, there's some programs that may ask the students to tie a knot in uh, during the interview or give them ethical situations they may encounter in the, in the OR or during the interview and see, you know, how they respond. Do you think that there should be more technical criteria to evaluate students interested in surgery or where do you see um, the evaluation of candidates in surgery going in the future? So the first answer is yes, there needs to be. Um, and I don't think anyone would disagree. The problems that occur is number one, if the AC, if the AAMC doesn't require it, there are very few schools that are pursuing it. And there are a lot of reasons for it, a lot of uh, understandable reasons. Uh, there's a lot more information to be taught in medical school and, and the amount of time has either stayed the same or in some places where they're going to three-year programs or shortening it. Um, and so to add an extra layer of education in terms of technical education and, technical and subsequent technical testing, because if you're just going to test them without educating and validating what the test shows, it's no good and especially waste that on students who aren't even going to go into surgery. So I think it eventually will happen, but it hasn't happened yet. In terms of programs doing it, and for a while there, um, there were some programs, Jeff Cadeto at UT Southwestern again had the program going, but what they found is that some students were afraid to apply there because they were afraid they were being judged on an interview. I'm thinking, what do you think an interview is? There's this culture that everybody goes on the interview, they all go home with a balloon and a lollipop, and everybody's happy, and it's kumbaya. Um, and if one program tries to do it, then they're afraid they're going to be shunned and not get as good a candidate, because there is this, this fear that they're being judged and being measured. And again, unless that comes from AAMC or urology as a whole does it, if this is something the SAU says, look, this is a requirement for urology. They need to do this skill tying data before they show up on interviews. Yeah, but eventually, again, I think it's going to have to happen. Um, one way or the other, variability has to be cut out. The difference in times is going to have to be cut out. The amount of training is going to come out because it's about money. It's all financial. Money doesn't come from a tree. It's going to happen. We have another interesting question along those same lines. Do you eventually see there being a diverse 
convergence in training of urologists between medical office-based urologists versus surgical urologists um, and having different training requirements for these two cohorts of people? So the answer is there's, there is no question in my mind that should happen. Now the problem on a national level, why it hasn't happened yet, because a lot of people do agree and it's interesting, it's the people at the big programs tend to agree with this, the Cleveland clinics and the New York programs, the big New York programs, et cetera. There's most programs, the smaller programs, and the pushback is from the smaller programs because they're afraid they won't have the cases and they will be looked upon differently and not uh, be looked upon favorably by applicants. So that is the true reason why it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> but it's, it is going to happen. There hasn't been the pressure yet to make it. Something that we've done here, because there's, even in the New York metropolitan area, there's a shortage of urologists, again, not in Manhattan, not in the, the boroughs per se, but when you go out to Suffolk County, when you go up to Westchester, you go to Staten Island, it's like you're in the boonies, right? It's hard to recruit people. So what we did, we started a fellowship for people who did family medicine residency or internal medicine and trained them on office-based urology. So the good thing is they can take call, they can put stents up, they can do a bladder biopsy, they can't do TERPs, they can't do anything more advanced, but they do office-based. They can do a vasectomy, they can do a circumcision, etc. And that's most of what you're, the scary thing is and what the sad thing is, residents, all you residents get a skewed view of the world, okay? And I'll tell a vignette. When I was a, a resident, uh, Bill Catalone, I was doing a prostatectomy, did a uh, radical prostatectomy with Dr. Catalone, who was chief at that time. And after the case, he said, uh, you didn't thank me, Dr. Lucy. And I said, uh, I, I thought I said, thank you, Dr. Case. He said, what are you thanking me for? And I said, for, for letting me do the case. He said, no, that's not what you need to thank me for. I said, you know what you need to thank me for? And I said, no. And he said, I had to see 20 patients to find this one radical prostatectomy for you to operate on. And the residents get a skewed view, especially if you're in the, in the hospital most of the time, because you see all these radical prostatectomies that the attendings have and all these things and think they just fall out of the sky. And then all of a sudden you're in practice and you say, oh, where are these cases? And so, reality is you see general urology when you start there, unless you end up in some academic position where you're being funneled, you're a junior partner of a stone guy and they've got three months backed up of stones, you're going to get them. Um, most of when you go out to practice, it's general urology. And after a while, you get rusty and you don't feel comfortable as, as uh, Alan talked about in the talk before this. It's the self-selection. You know, you get one bad cystectomy and it cures you the rest of your life. You say, why the hell am I doing a cystectomy? It seems so easy when, when Doug Scher was doing it, but when I'm doing it, or when and Jim McKiernan does it, so easy. I'm doing it like, how come they developed a leak? How come I got to manage these things? So, yes, there should be a, a tiered system that will occur eventually. Yeah, all right. As we, as we look towards closing, um, is. You outlined that there's a lot of avenues for, you know, to explore for residents that are interested in developing automation in the in the OR with, you know, tactile features, et cetera. 
what advice would you give our residents in terms of pursuing ideas like this, things that have been effective and formative for you? What's the best piece of advice you can give them to pursue so these ideas? So the residents, unfortunately, don't know Don Coffey. Don Coffey was the head of research at Hopkins, and God rest his soul, was an incredible human being. He was a PhD. And he said to me when I got there, he said, he asked me what I want to do, and he said, and I told him a few things. He said, what gives you tachycardia? What makes you excited? So the residents, you can't force things. Look at what gets you excited to think about. You think about it, and it makes the endorphins go off in your head, thinking about these things. Wow, this is great. And then... Um, Try to do investigating, like who you could partner with, who from an engineering standpoint, if it's an engineering project, and then cold call. And realize you're going to get a lot of doors closed in your face. There are going to be people that are busy and whatnot. But keep bugging them. And when you go to them, you got to go to them with a, a lucid plan. And you don't have to have any money. I've gone to a lot of people with zero dollars in my pocket. There's always a little money that you get from the department. If you have a good project, go to your chair. And you said, look, I met this engineer. I need like $5,000 to really do this. There are grants to the AUA. There are grants to the SAU, these things. Uh, but don't quit. The other thing, you're going to get nine times out of 10, the doors are going to close. But if you believe in something, you just got to keep pushing. And it will happen. It will ha it's how all great things happen. The problem is that people give up too early. And they give up too early because of fatigue, or maybe it's really not their passion. It really has got to be be something that you're excited about and then you will be successful and the same thing when you finish practice no matter what area of urology you pick and all the residents especially these twos and threes so confused i like this i like that i rotate this that you gotta think what put put a uh, put your watch on your smart watch and see during what rotation was your heart rate the fastest what were you most excited about do that well that, that was just, thank you so much for that advice, for this lecture from Dr. Kavusi, the master himself. And thank you so much for your support for the Empire series in general. Thank um, you guys for doing this. This is superb and really wonderful. Really, really appreciate it.